The following is brought to you in part by MFC Studios. The views of the show's host and guests do not necessarily reflect those of the management, owners, or staff of this radio station. And now, it came from the radio. himself in the head or a gunshot you know uh, I mean come on there's just so many jokes here he's busted buster you know we don't do we don't do suicide jokes on this show that's that's okay. very terrible and remember you have to enunciate so I can pick you up I'm not trying to enunciate <laughs> right. so moving on to the next bit of sad news actor Earl Bowen also died recently from lung cancer while appearing in such films slash TV shows and animated projects such as the streets of San Francisco, What's Happening, One Woman, Last of the Good Guys, Buck Rogers in the 21st Century, The Man with Two Brains, Mama's Family, Annihilator, Alien Nations, My Stepmother's an Alien, L.A. Law, Mark for Death, Naked Gun, 33 and a Third, The Final Insult, The Odd Couple Part 2, um, All American Hero, Ali All American Hero, Nutty Professor 2, The Clumps, 
G.I. Joe, the movie, The Birds of Adventures of Super Ted, Skeleton Warriors, The Fantastic Voyage of Sinbad the Sailor, Spider-Man, Kim Possible, Zork, Grand Inquisitor, and Toy Story 2, Buzz Lightyear to the Rescue, just to name a few. Uh, Earl is perhaps best known for his role of Dr. Peter Silverman in the Terminator franchise, part 1, 2, and 3, and Mr. Bleakman in the Clifford the Red Big Dog series, as well as Police Chief Kanifiki, Kanifiki? K-N-I, K-N-I-F-K-Y in the Disney series Bonkers. Um, you familiar with Terminator there, Alan? Absolutely. Absolutely. Fan of Terminator. Do we have any fans of Terminator? No, absolutely, audience? Yeah. What about you, Jen? Fan of Terminator? Uh, they might want to terminate me after my last comment, so I'll be fine. Okay. Uh, he was 81 years old. Let's see. And for the last bit of sadness, actor Adam Rich also died recently. As of this recording, no cause of death has been announced. Uh, while perhaps best known for his role of Nicholas Branford, the youngest son in the television series Eight Is Enough, which ran from 112 episodes from 1977 to 1981, Adam also appeared in such shows as Tutiki and His Search for a Merry Christmas, The Devil and Max Devlin, Code Red, Dickie Roberts' former child star, and the animated Dungeons and Dragons TV series, which ran from 1983 to 1985 on CBS. Of note, Adam reprised his role of Nicholas in the two reunion movies on Eight Enough, Wedding, and an Eight Is Enough family reunion. Uh, he was 54. Uh, I was a huge Dungeons and Dragons fan, uh, the cartoon, the animated series. Were you uh, aware of that show? Uh, yeah, I was. I started playing D&D a couple years before that. Um, so, yeah, we were well aware of the TV show. We used to watch it all the time and compare, like, what we were actually doing to what they were showing on the show. What about you, David? Are you a fan? Are you aware of Dungeons and Dragons, anime series, or anything? He doesn't know? I'm aware of people who play the game, but I don't know about the game itself. <laughs> that's, that's, that's fair enough. She knows the I look like what it sounds like. Got fantastic. Um, I was a big Dungeons and Dragons fan. Um, I loved the animated series, and a lot of uh, old cast members of the shows that I watched was on that show. Uh, Charles and Charles had Willie Ames was on there from Happy Days. Was a uh, uh, Don Most was on there as well. Sure, sure. And so watching that show, I had no idea that the kid from Aided Enough was in the Dungeons and Dragons uh, television series. And he had enough. And he had enough. Very nice. I need a drum roll for that. Um, so moving on. So that's it for the Saturdays. So moving on to the not as sad news, from the... I am Dungeon Master, your guide in the realm of Dungeons and Dragons. Department. None other than IDW is bringing back the 1980s Dungeons and Dragons cartoon as a four-part comic miniseries. Dungeons and Dragons, Saturday Morning Adventures is a new comic that will bring back Hank, Sheila, Diana, Presto, Bobby, Eric, and Yumi for new adventures to fight the war against Venture, and is described as <clears throat> Danger lurks at every turn. The enigmatic Dungeon Master is less than helpful, and Venture, the force of evil, will stop at nothing to get his hands on the magical weapons that the kids have come to rely on. To top it off, Hank has made some startling discoveries. Despite the dangers, Sheila, Bobby, Diana, and the others aren't so sure they want to go home after all. Um, as I mentioned, I was a huge fan of uh, Dungeons and Dragons, and for years, I was looking for that final episode that had aired. It only aired one time on CBS, and going to conventions, going to the bootleg guy with a tape, you always had to try and find. Oh, I remember those guys, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I finally found the episode, and then years later, thanks to the internet, I found out that they had made one other script that was never filmed. And what was really cool is that if you go on YouTube right now and search up Dungeons & Dragons, uh, the original Sheila actress, 
got together with some comic book creators and they did a story. They made a comic book based on the script for the original Unearned episode and then they made an audio uh, pilot of it. So you can go on it and you can see them doing the voices and she was the original Sheila. So they got her to do the voice and they got other people to do the voices of the, the show. And then um, you can see how the story is actually resolved. And for you fans who are unaware of that, they actually made a commercial, uh, a car commercial uh, recently, I believe it was a Super Bowl commercial last year, maybe a year ago, where they had the Dungeons & Dragons kids, and they were being attacked, and a car rescues them, and the car takes them home, so it resolves the entire series. That they found That's so home. cool. Yeah. That's so cool. You're looking at me with eight heads, you have no idea what I'm talking about. I've been living in a dungeon, I don't know what I'm talking about. I still have a dragon and So, moving on. Moving on from the. Let's go to the interview with them. We we're getting there. We're getting there. We got we got a fifteen more minutes to go. So more news. So from the. That's a lot of nuts. Department. The first unofficial weekend of box office receipts are in, and the new Avatar movie is the highest-grossing film of 2023 so far, with 116.6 million dollars, followed by Puss in Boots. At, 20, at $32.4 million, which I saw. Now, what's interesting is that the first new film of the calendar year, which is Megan, which is a horror film like a, about a killer girl robot doll that launched itself into the third spot with only $30.4 million. So right now, the only new movie that came out this year was Megan. It's already at the number three spot. Do you think it's going to hold on for the rest of the 50 weeks? For 50 weeks? No. Yeah, until the end of the year. No, I think. no, no. Okay. Did you yeah. see? Did, did you see Megan? Should I, I want to though. I saw some trailers. Yeah, no, it's very interesting. The AI, the AI, you know, girl is a killer. It's kind of like Chucky. You know? It's like Chucky. I, 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 I haven't seen it. Yet. It's like it's like Chucky with morality. Chucky with morality. Gone wrong. <laughs> Chucky gets way older. Did anybody in the audience see uh, Megan? Yeah. <laughs> One guy saw it. I'm not that. <laughs> Did he like he thumbs? He has one thumb up, one thumb down. So it's just uh, halfway. It was okay, he says. Yeah. Right, right in the middle. Fine, right fine. Right the healthiest people usually have these thoughts. And you usually on one side or the other, you're usually a little Alright, so moving on. From the, that was a short retirement department. None other than retired, retired, WWE Chairman Vince McMahon has announced that he is returning to the company after stepping down just a few months ago as the company gears up for negotiations over media rights and strategic alternatives. Vince says, you want to be Vince McMahon? You want to read what Vince says right there? This is Vince McMahon speaking. The only way <laughs> for WWE to fully capitalize on this opportunity is for me to return as executive chairman and support the management team in the negotiations for our media rights and to combine that with the review of strategic alternatives. My return will allow WWE as well as any transaction counterparties to engage in these processes knowing they will have the support of the controlling shareholder. Of note, Vince, while stepping down over Twitter to control the company, leaving his daughter and son in law in charge, did retain a majority share of stocks of the company, which essentially gives them final say over all voting decisions. While writing this bit of news, none other than Stephanie McMahon posted this announcement. It reads, in part, About eight months ago, I took a leave of absence, and within a few weeks, unexpectedly had the opportunity of a lifetime. 
I had the privilege to attend as the co-CEO and chairwoman of the board of the WWE. Our founder, Vince McMahon, has returned as executive chair. I'm confident WWE is in the perfect place to continue to provide unparalleled creative content and drive maximum value for shareholders. WWE is in such a strong position that I've decided to return to my leave and take it one step further with my official resignation. So to top all things off, and this is all due to rumors that WWE is up for sale and may be purchased by either Comcast, Amazon, and or Endeavor, which owns UFC. Um, we had we talked about Vince McMahon stepping down and how big of a deal it was, and how um, I believe uh, our senior correspondent Charles Selding was saying that it didn't really make a difference because he still had majority shareholders, so he was still kind of in charge, but not really. Yeah, well, there so was he just voted himself back in. Well, he's in hot water, some allegations, so or he did. He did leave during the allegations of sexual misconduct. That's the official term. Right. That he paid fifteen million dollars over the course of the years for hush money, right. and then they said anything anyway. But there was no formal charges brought, and then he decided to step down while that was still going on. That news went away. And yeah. a couple months later, like I'm gonna vote myself back to being in charge because maybe he was the very Maybe this was all planned. Maybe it's just optics. Like, oh, I'll step down to appease them, or maybe he stepped down. He's like, okay, I gave them what I need, and maybe they'll forget. Because there's so many sexual, there's so many scandals going on. It's like, okay, Dr. Fauci, let's focus on that, so he can come back now because people maybe forgot about his sexual allegations. What do you People tend to forget a lot of things. And if it's not constantly right in front of them, so he can hide for a little while and just spend what, hundreds of millions maybe, of dollars. And maybe Chris D'Elia now is in the news, and he's like, "Oh, the spotlight's on him now. I can step up and take my throne back." Yeah, if he still had the controlling shares of it, I mean, he just he could just do whatever he wanted. Yeah, maybe people didn't like the daughter running things. Well, apparently to the quote-unquote fans, they were loving the creative content and how the shift had changed on the on that side. Yeah. But creative content and then the financials, there's two different things. So maybe the financial end, they weren't making the money that they wanted because despite everything, of all the complaints of WWE, they were making money hand over fist. They were doing billions of dollars in business despite the quote-unquote product not being as good as they had fans perceived it to be. So now the fans are happier with Vince gone because the son-in-law is in charge of creative. He's coming back to make the stockholders and the business end happy. It's interesting. It is very interesting. I don't do what the real story is. We'll never know. That's true. We will never really know. We'll never know. So moving on, I believe we have, we have two more. From the That's Quite a While to Wait Department. Due to a California law that temporarily suspended the statute of limitations over for older claims of child sexual abuse, none other than Olivia Hussey and Leonard Whiting has filed suit against Paramount Pictures for sexually exploiting them and distributing nude images of them as adolescent children in the 1968 version of Romeo and Juliet. The scene in question was a bedroom scene where they showed Leonard's naked butt and Olivia's breasts. The suit alleges that Frank, that Franco Zeffirelli, the director of the film, who died in 2019, assured both actors that there would be no nudity in the film and that they would wear flesh-colored undergarments in the bedroom scene. However, in the final days of filming, the director allegedly implored them to perform nude without body makeup or, quote, the picture would fail. 
The actor's manager says, you want to read what the actor's manager says? What we were told was, what we were told and what went on were two different things. They trusted Franco. At 16, actors took his lead, but he would not violate the trust they had. Franco was their friend, and frankly, at 16, what did they do? There were no options. There was no Me Too movement. According to the complaint, both actors have suffered mental anguish and emotional distress in the 55 years since the film's release, and also have lost out to a lot of job opportunities as they are seeking damages and believe in excess of $500 million. Do you want me to lower see what they say? Lawyer says nude images of minors are unlawful and shouldn't be exhibited. These were very young, naive children in the 60s who had no understanding of what was about to hit them. All of a sudden, they were famous at a level they never expected. And in addition, they were violated in a way they didn't know how to deal with. So let's just wait 55 years and see what they're However, of note, in a 2018 interview with Riley, Olivia was quoted as defending the nude scene, saying, nobody my age had done that before. It was needed for the film. It wasn't that big of a deal. And Leonard, which was the co-host, wasn't shy at all. In the middle of shooting, I completely forgot I didn't have any clothes on. So as a female actress, if someone said that to you, that, uh, you know, no nudity in the contract, and then they say, we need you to be nude in the scene, would you, at first, what would you do? I mean, it's all about what you feel comfortable on set that day. I mean, I, I'll give you a parallel story. Okay. A little bit. So as a model, as a photographer, tell me to do a photo shoot. I spend hours packing clothes, classy clothes, and then ask me to basically go into, say, no, 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 this, no, this, no, this will work. None of this will work good in the magazine. None of this. You have to wear a see-through fishnet outfit. And basically, like, fully me to wear it. And it did look good, but, you know, I, I sort of was comfortable, but the whole situation is ridiculous. It's all switcheroo, which is very common on sets. But if you agree to do something, and no one's holding a gun to your head, which, you know, didn't happen to me, you know, I don't like the photographer. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it, but it was my choice. So I can't go back and sue the guy. That's kind of my similar thoughts on that. But they were 16, so it's a little extra sleazy. But also, their whole case is broken because it's been 55 years. <laughs> and the director is dead. Like, what are we going right. to do? Yeah. So, Patrick, yeah. what do you think? If, 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 if you're in a situation where you, you have actors or actresses that had a no nudity clause, but then right. you're making a movie and you're like, you know what, this scene needs them to be nude. Does that ever happen? Is that something you think would happen? Uh, I, I, has it happened to me? No. Has it happened? Has it happened every single day in this industry? Absolutely. Um, I had kind of the opposite experience, though. Um, we had done a film a number of years ago. Um, <laughs> and um, and yeah, we we had a film a couple of years ago, and um, it did call for one nude scene in a bathtub, and the actress agreed to it. Once she got there, though. Um, she felt very uncomfortable and said, I can't do this. And, and there were some people on the set that were kind of pissed off about that, and then cooler heads prevailed, and most of us were like, well, what are you gonna do? Strip her yourself? And what are we gonna do here? Or do you make this work? Do you make the person who now has changed their mind feel more comfortable? And we did. You know, and we did it in a different way. Mm-hmm. And it was, and it still was the same impact. It was, a, it was a dream sequence. So you could do that any way you want anyway. 
you know. But um, but but the but the key point with here is it doesn't matter when it was or where it was. These are minors, and and a minor is a minor. And and when I I've worked with minors before, and um, my rule is that not only you know are there certain things that you have to put into place for that. One of your parents got to be there in the room with you at all times. Mm. And even these are pieces of people I knew for a long, long time. Like, no, if your parent isn't there, you can't have someone you know, be there for you, you're not in this. It's as simple as that. Because then everyone, then the eyes are on everything. Mm-hmm. You know? But, it, but 1968, I mean, I was, I was born in 1968. So, I mean, you know, this was, you know, this was a long time ago and things in a different, different world. And I'm not saying that it's right, but it was a completely different world. Right. Did anybody ever watch that woman Julia from 1968? I haven't seen it. Any audience have seen it? Yes. Audience has seen it, yes. We have one person in the audience. They made me watch it in school. You had to watch it in school, <laughs> she says. Yeah. Was it uh, necessary for the film for them to be naked? Did it make an impact on you watching it? Um, they didn't need to be naked. They didn't need to be naked. No. Um, but they were very young. But they were very young. They looked young and young. And for like, you can see those two kids. And then, wait, so you went to school and you saw naked people and it was fine? I went to Catholic school. Catholic school and you saw naked people was fine. I don't know if that's better or worse. I served 12 years in Catholic school. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Most certainly, yes. Alright, so moving on to the final bit of news. From the Holy Baby Shower Batman Department. In the recently released issue of Joker, The Man Who Stopped Laughing, it is revealed that none other than the Clown Prince of Crime, due to a spell cast on him by Zatanna, was pregnant and gave birth to his own son. It turns yes, you read that right. Yeah. Uh, turns out that in his latest scheme to steal Gotham's water supply, the Joker clashes and is defeated by Zatanna, who is most famous for using backward spells. The spell in question was translated to say, "No one else will have your baby." Which in turn makes him pregnant, and then after waking up nine, after waking up the next day, he's nine months pregnant, spits out a blob of sentient monk, which swiftly changes into a newborn Joker. So, what do you think of a male pregnant Joker having his own son? It's very 2023. <laughs> it's very on brand. I mean, I don't know. I feel like it's been done a lot in the last two years. I feel like we should move on to just women having babies again and, you know, just break some, uh, break the trending, the trends with, with women giving birth. Cause that's kind of rare now. Okay. Yeah, it's all about, it's all about men giving birth. It's like it's been done. It's been done already. Yes, yeah, so it's enough. Alright, what, what do you think, Dave Patrick? Uh, Joker giving birth to his own son? I'm absolutely sick of men having babies. <laughs> um, myself, no, I, I had no idea that was, was a thing. Um, but, but if the, the grander thing with Batman, Joker, and everything else for me, let's get a new idea. Let's get something else. Let's just please try something new. There's been 15 Batmans, there's 19 Jokers, there's everything. It's like, let's just get some other kind of thing going. You know, what I mean, you know. Well, this is different. <laughs> it is different. It is, it is different. I don't think that was Disney. <laughs> yeah, that's that's Warner Brothers. That's definitely Warner different. Brothers. Right. Um, I think it's, I remember in the old days, this was before I was born, when you go look at the old comic books, and they have like a description of the comic inside of what's going to be on the cover. They had some really crazy ideas back then. So having a pregnant Joker, while 
might be motivated in different reasons why it was done, I say, why not? Let's see what happens. And all that matters to me is if the story is good. So if the story is good and this makes sense, I say go for it. Unfortunately, just by reading this, it sounds like nonsense, but I will give them the benefit of the doubt. Um, I saw there was this big thing about the new uh, Scooby-Doo series that doesn't have Scooby-Doo in it. And Velma is a black girl, and uh, Daphne's Asian now, and uh, uh, Shaggy is now called Norva, which is his real name, and he's also black. And it's by uh, Mindy Kaling. And when I heard about it, it has no Scooby-Doo. You listen to all the interviews. They're saying, oh, we want to take a new take on it. We want to be different. We want to be this. And I saw the images. I'm like, this looks really bad. I don't want to see it. It has nothing to do with Scooby-Doo, especially having a Scooby-Doo show without Scooby-Doo in it. Yeah, Before coming here part. to the to this live show, I saw the trailer. Maybe there was someone identified as Scooby-Doo, and they just didn't realize No, they, they said in interviews, no Scooby-Doo is going to be in a new Scooby-Doo movie. Uh, tell yeah. <laughs> but is it still called Scooby-Doo something? It's, it's called Velma. It's just called Velma because it's all about Velma. Oh, so it's just Velma. Oh, oh but I thought it was called Scooby-Doo and like, he's not there. Yeah. Oh my but, God, but after seeing the trailer, but after seeing the trailer, I thought it looked funny. And I'm just going to take it as its own and see as opposed to being Scooby-Doo. And we have a question from the audience. Yes, a question for a statement. Statement. Yeah, and also they have Daphne's, um, Daphne is selling drugs. Daphne is selling drugs, you see? <laughs> so, well, she probably always was, since she was very, very thin. So yeah, that might have been a problem even way back then. So um, on face value, it looked really bad, it looked really stupid. But after watching the trailer, I can see the humor in it, and I will be able to distance myself from the source material and watch it as it is if it looks entertaining. So goes by the same thing with this Joker having a baby. It looked bad, so now I It looked bad, but the trailer made me. It, it gave me one air. They saw the trailer. It looks funny. I will give it a try. And if I don't like it, I will watch it, and that'll be the end of it, as opposed to making a whole campaign about it. So normally, we're going to take our break. Uh, I would have music and stuff, so we're going to take our break. We're going to take a two-minute break, and we'll be right back with the game from the radio. Hi, you've heard my voice open and close the show. Now, we want to hear your voice. If you have a business or product, you can record a commercial here. We offer 30 and 60 second spots. For more information, contact Mark at MFC underscore studios at hotmail.com. Hi, this is Sue Lee from Face Off Season 2. You're listening to It Came From The Radio. This is Quentin Flynn, a popular voice actor known for Axel, come on, uh, and Ryden from the Metal Gear series. And you're listening to It Came From The Radio. Stick around. It's Marissa Jade, your favorite mob wife, and you're listening to It Came From The Radio. This is Gray Griffin, and you're listening to It Came From The Radio. Now, back to our show. And welcome back to It Came From The Radio. This is your host, Mark Torres, speaking. We are here for our 64th live show in person since the pandemic. First time in the East Mill Public Library since 2019, I believe. Right, in 2019, in front of a large studio audience. Yeah. I'm here with, oh man, Jenny Kelly. Good evening. And I'm here with uh, Patrick uh, Devani. Hello. So, um, I want to mention that the East Mill Public Library has tons and tons of um, programs, most of which are free. You go to www.eastmill.info for more information. Um, one of the things that they have is our show, which is the second Wednesday of every month. Um, our next live show will be on the 8th of 
February, and we have with this paper right there. You want to hand me that paper, is it? The blue one on top. Yes, you grab me the whole thing. We have on Wednesday, February eighth. We have a um, co-founder and CEO of the Artisans Nook, Brittany Pleasant. She uh, does um, crocheting, and we will have uh, prizes given at every live show that you guys come down. So make sure you guys come down to the East Mill Public Library and get some stuff. Everybody gets a raffle ticket, and we give away prizes. You actually have a prize that you're going to give away uh, this week, right? Oh, absolutely. And yes. what, what is the prize we're going to be giving away at the end of the show? Well. Um, a lot of people don't know how, how things are done on set. Um, so what we have is a script from something I shot several years ago that has a copy of the shot list and in how we actually did it that day and also a copy of the script that my assistant director matched certain lines to, to, to the shot list and you can see all her notes inside of it. So it's, it's pages and pages of all her handwritten notes that were happening as we were filming. So it's one of those things that you never really see, you know, outside of being on the set. So that's what we have today. So you have a matching script and a shot list. Yeah. Behind the screen script and shot list. Yes. Yes. All right. So Patrick, I guess let's start off with a little introduction of yourself. What do you do? Who are you? And how did you wind up? Yes. Hello, everybody. My name is Patrick Devandi. I'm an independent filmmaker, writer, and editor. I'm also an well, you don't stop because you don't have any good yet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm also active in a, in a number of different projects. Uh, I was I've spent uh, years doing uh, background and featured work on television, and I I kind of like live for this. Um, I love I love independent film. Uh, I've seen some people I've worked with in the, in the studio, which is wonderful. Um, some actors, some writers I've worked with, and and that's what I do. I love it. Uh, I've been doing it since 2005. And I, every single day of my life is in something towards that type of type of work, whether it's writing or editing or or the next project coming up. Okay, so countless people want to make movies, but they think, "Oh, I can't do that," or they don't have the skills to do that. And then there's a bunch of delusional people that think, "Oh, I can definitely do that," but they really, really can't. So, what made you initially think, "I can make movies. I can." What? Yeah. Um, I, I was I was a performing musician um, back in the '80s, and I loved being on stage. I loved performing, um, and I kind of given that up for a while. And what I was seeing was that people with the new technology they didn't really have to cut celluloid film anymore. They could they could film with palm quarters. They could film with whatever they had. And I saw a lot of people that were popping up on public access television. Um, every community has that. You just look on your cable, you'll find public access, and you'll find some very crazy things. Today it's mostly like church shows and things like that. But um, at the time, in 2004, 2005, people were doing scripted work. Mm-hmm. And I said, wow, if they're doing this, we could be doing this. And I knew enough people that had gone to film school. I knew some people that had wanted to get involved in things. And when I was growing up, my favorite thing in the world was Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead. And I said, there's no zombies on television. We could definitely do this. Why are we not do, why are we not seeing this? Mm-hmm. And I said, we're just gonna have to make our own. And that's what we did. And we made um, a show called Zombie Hunter City of the Dead. And we filmed it with palm quarters. And we asked everyone that we knew who had any kind of experience whatsoever doing this. And we launched it from there. And in the course of the run of the show, um, we had maybe five to six hundred people work on it. Um, all volunteers going over the course of maybe like 13, 14 years. 
Um, and and uh, it launched a lot of careers. There are people doing professional makeup um, on gigantic Hollywood sets right now that started with us. Um, some of our public this was this was started on public access. It played on public access for years. Uh, we got we, we wound up getting national distribution on DVD. Um, they played us everywhere. They played us um, uh, at one point. They were playing. I got a call from the state of California and asked if they wanted to um, if we could show it in um, their correctional facilities. And I'm like, you want to show something this violent in jails? And they're like, yeah, the guys would love it. And I said, well, absolutely, why not? You know? And uh, they said, yeah, anything that's going to give them entertainment, they're going to enjoy. I'm like, yeah, we can do that. So that was another aspect of it. But I had seen other people doing it, and I said, we can definitely do this, and why not? And and uh, we've been doing it ever since. Is that an untapped uh, captive audience to the prison? It's a very captive audience, yes, as it turns out, yes. <laughs> when, did you ever think you would make something specifically for prisoners in prison? Uh, no, it never even dawned on me, and it was strange because at the time uh, my co-writer was um, an active uh, police officer with the NYPD, and I, called, and I said to him, listen, we have this opportunity, what do you think? He said, hey, listen, I'm, I'm all for it. He said, I'm absolutely all for this. He's like, you know, it's, it is what it is, and, and why would we turn down any audience? And I said, yeah, that sounds cool with me, and I gave them permission to do it. As far as I know, it's still on, on uh, close circuit TV and throughout the entire state of California, penal system. <laughs> so do you suggest people getting arrested and going to jail to watch the stuff? No, there's a lot easier ways to do it. You can yeah, it's pretty much all online now, so you can do that for free, and you know, it's, it's you know, felonies are expensive. So yeah, no. You get a free show and food and room and board. You know. Well, well, yeah, you know, you, you definitely could. You know, mm-hmm. and a lot of a lot of new friends. Yes. All right. So, like, everyone and their mother wants to collaborate now. Collaboration is very popular, especially in the last few years. So, what are some deal breakers that would prevent you from collaborating with someone, either you know, having them as part of the crew, or writing with you, or acting, or what are some things that you see where you're like, okay, now. Yeah. Oh, oh um, I, I've been very lucky in this that I haven't really dealt with this much. But um, but if I see anyone um, being disrespectful to anyone, especially women, mm-hmm. it's it's automatically out, automatically out. Any 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 lewd jokes, any comments, hitting on anyone, done, done. What if you heard they were disrespectful, but you didn't mm-hmm. see it yourself? Um, uh, I'll tell you, that's a really good point, um, okay. and that can be tough. Um, I worked with an actress years ago um, who was nothing but nice to me and, and was great on set. And um, some other actresses have said to me that she was saying things to them um, when I wasn't around, putting them down, saying, you know, you're not, the reason you're not getting um, in front of the camera more is because, you know, you put on a lot of weight. If you were just prettier, if you were thinner, if you were this. And I said, that doesn't sound like anyone that I would work with. Right. But about a year later, someone who had never been on a set with me before and didn't know any of the other people told me a similar story about that one particular actress. And I've never worked with her again. Interesting. So it's like, it's like, with this corroboration there, you know, it's like, I, 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 I would talk to her first, but, but how can that same story show up from people who have never met each other? Right. So that, but that's that's very rare. I'm very lucky in that most people are not like that. But um, but any kind of disrespect, um, uh, I also run a very dry set. There's no drinking, there's no drugs, there's no nothing. 
And if and there are people who have said to me, you know, why can't why don't you ever call me to work? And I'll say because you're always high. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like wait, people people don't know that I'm high. I'm like no, everyone knows that you're high. Right. You don't know that everybody knows that you're high. Right. You know, so it's like that kind of thing. Um, but that's again, I've only had that handled. I only have handled that a couple of times. And well, what about if they're drinking or and or getting high afterwards? Because sometimes you know it's not on the set. But you know they do it in their life a lot. But they keep it off the set. Yeah. If, if they what, when when we're done shooting for the day, um, I hope that people don't go you know drinking and then driving home. But whatever they want to do afterwards, whatever they do afterwards, right. you know I, I can't. Into it. Yeah. I mean, like I mean, I've I've taken people out to restaurants afterwards. I've taken them out to a bar. We've all had a drink afterwards. You know, when I was when I used to drink, and um, and that's I don't think that's a problem. That's not a problem. Socializing beforehand. Um, I have a I have a film coming up in April where um, there's going to be several people that all that all uh, comprise one family, and it's a conflict within that family. And I'm going to get them all into a restaurant and just see how they are with each other, and get them used to each other, and get them talking to each other, and things like that. So like when when we're on set, you know, I'm going to have everyone tell a story, something personal or something whatever they want to share, and then when and then when they're there, they're going to know those little things about each other, and it's just going to help, okay. you know. So I, so there probably will be a few bottles of wine that night, yes. So. <laughs> just not when we shoot. <laughs> Makes sense. So the two of you who are sitting right next to me, my co-host and Jane Kelly and Patrick here, are both filmmakers in their own right, um, but one's a woman and one's a male, as, as they identify as, I believe, right? Yeah. So can you describe the differences of working as a male in the industry? And then you can describe as a female, because that's always a big thing. I think it's just you make good crap and then keep moving, but apparently people like women in the industry get treated un- more unfairly, or they get treated as a less of than just a person that makes stuff. So in your experiences, as a man, do you see that happening with women? And in your experiences, yeah, you know, and sure, yeah. do you see that as well? Yeah, but... Um, it's, 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 I can only really speak from my own point of view on that. I really can't. I tell fellas on my, on, my, on my sets, like, you know, we're going we're gonna to be respectful. We're going to, you know, no screwing around. This isn't a frat house. Don't, don't be jerks, you know. Um, I'll give you a, a, an interesting story, though, um, why, how there's still such a, a separation of things. Um, I also run a couple of film festivals, and um, I had asked my judges this, you know, one year, about two years ago, and it still holds true to this day. I would like to combine best actor and best actress awards for just best actor. Why can't it be that? Um, all the guys said, "Yeah, I'm fine with that." Mm-hmm. All the women said, "We're not there yet." Huh. And I said, "But isn't it that equality?" So, yeah, but but if you do that, ninety. Percent of the time, a guy's gonna win. And I went, I, I, that, that was across the board. That was every woman I spoke to that was involved in it, individually. So, so I'm like, okay, so this is something that I'm seeing that I wasn't aware of. Maybe just like two best actors, you know? So then there's two shots. I mean, that's, that's one way around it, yeah. Well, you can have a fight in the middle once you have the best male. Best exactly. Best. Yeah. I don't know. But just bare knuckles, though. Like it has to, yeah, yeah. You have to fight it out. But, um, but yeah, but that, that was, that was something that I had seen that I wasn't really that aware of. And, um, and, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was not what I was expecting, but I, I respected it, you know? And they were like, yeah, we'd, we'd love that happen. 
not there yet. Yeah, I don't know what I think about that. Or, uh, well, things that I don't know if, I mean, men, men encounter all the things that I encounter, but this week alone, it's, on set, it's not really a problem being a female, I, I don't think. It's never for me. I feel like Probably. I really haven't dealt with too much unprofessionalism in acting and modeling, yeah. But um, it's really what happens after, like, you'll meet people on set. Like, someone on set just invited me to go to the Poconos the other day. I don't know you. What do you think? I'm an escort. Like, I, I mean, I think men might get that, too, from women, you know, trying to bait them. But I, I, don't, I don't know. Or um, it's just a lot of garbage in the social media messenger inbox. And also, if they get your text, which is also happening this week, you're going to get a lot of nonsense messages. Um, men get that, too. But... I think there's, I think there's more from what I, from the men I talk to, I think this week alone has been a very weird week and it's just, it's a lot of saying no, uh, constantly and it's really annoying today. <laughs> that's my biggest gripe today. It's like, what are you, why are you asking me these things? So that's something I encounter as a woman, just like dealing with the inbox, which I try not to even open. It's a disaster. So Patrick, you said, uh, you were a musician before you decided to be a filmmaker. Yes. What, uh, what music or instrument did you play? Uh, I played keyboards and bass guitar, depending on the music we were playing. If it was, a, if I was in a punk band, it was always bass. Um, if it was more, it was more like uh, more. I, I actually played a lot of funk music. Believe it or not, people don't think it, but yeah. But I was, I was in some bands like that, and um, and uh, that was always a lot of fun. Uh, the best musicians I ever met were through bands like that, and, and we would play all over Manhattan. You know, we play all over. All over the place, um, in you know some of the bigger clubs in the city, and it was wonderful. Do you score your movies then? I'm I'm just starting to do that now. I, I have I've contributed music to two films that I was involved in, and the one that I'm shooting this April, I intend on scoring the entire thing myself for the first time. I've built a production studio in my apartment, so so that's uh, I'm trying to do everything out of that, ultimately including animation. Right, that's the way to do it. Just learn almost everything yourself. Yeah. And do it in house. It's so much easier if you can do the music part of it. The yeah. people I know that can do that. It's just like such a game changer if you can do your own music and editing and filming. And also you're in front of the camera too. So yeah. So I read that you were a director first and then you jumped in front of the camera. So yes. what made you jump in front of the camera? You just couldn't deal with like all the actors? They were really annoying. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I've had enough of these damn actors, and I'm going to do it myself. I'll okay. do it all myself. Um, I play every role. I every single role in it, yeah. Um, we'll redo the room. I'll be everybody. Yeah. That's what I was thinking the entire time I was talking. I was like, No, I, 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 I cast myself in, in one of the roles when I first started directing, uh, just because I really wanted to do it as well. But... Um, yeah, it's, it, it's funny, like most people start out doing like, you know, some basic, uh, you know, nondescript background and they start getting some lines, they start getting some theater, and they start getting some stuff. I started off as a director and I worked my way all the way backwards to general, you know, backgrounds on, in crowds. <laughs> <laughs> um, it just, just kind of worked that way. It made more sense to me that way because I knew, like, I wanted to get a certain vision out, but at the same time, I wanted to also learn other aspects. Um, I talk about background a lot because what I did was, I, I suggest this to any, any actor listening to this or anyone like that, if you have not done just basic general background, do it. Because you get paid to go to film school. Right. You can go to sets. You know this. You go to sets and you'll see, and, and don't watch the actors. Watch you know, how the different crews work. 
Watch the camera crew. Mm-hmm. Watch the AD. Watch what they do. Look at the carpenters. Look at the trainees. Look at the people doing craft services. Look how that, that everything's a ballet, how that all works. So I always suggest to anyone doing acting, you know, and, and if you're an actor, try directing something. And if you're a director, try acting. You will always understand each other better. Thousand percent. Yeah, a friend of mine tried to do an entire sitcom with me after not being on any sets, and I tried to warn him, but he's one of these people that's so confident and a great comedy writer, but, you know, it, it didn't work because he hadn't been on any sets. And then he spent two years as a background actor and moved to California and said, oh, I learned so much, and now gave it another shot, like, five years later, and it's like, yeah, I told you to do this six years ago, buddy. You gotta be on sets before you direct and make a whole sitcom. What are you doing? Yeah, to, to do something on that scale, you know, when we first started out, it was we, we, had, we were very lucky with certain locations, and then I talked to people if they wanted to be in it, and they did, and other were professional actors. And then when we started advancing things, then we started getting people who were more into the industry, and we started getting somewhat better results. You know, but um, but yeah, without without having the basis of that, you don't have to go to film school, but you have to know what you're talking about. You have to see it. Mm-hmm. You know, most people don't know that when you go to a television show. You know, each camera has a crew of six people. So if you have three cameras running around, there's 18 people who have to weave themselves in and out of each other and do it gracefully. And it's a beautiful thing to watch when you're on a big set like that. You see, you see, you see it, it's absolutely a ballet. It's absolutely beautiful. So back to you, with the sure. back on you. You're here. Are you here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're here. I'm ready. Right. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Who, who knows what's real anymore? Mm-hmm. Uh, what messages or topics are you very passionate about putting in your work? Um... I, I like doing things um, uh, that have some type of social justice tied to them. Um, uh, I, I, I did a film called Impervia, which is all about forced migration. Um, and it was it was a family living out in this little house, no one around them for 100 miles in any direction, until one day the cops show up and they say, you know, you got to move it along. And you start thinking, well, what does this family do? Who are they? What are we looking at? And what, why are they being thrown out of this one little place when that's all they have? Mm-hmm. And then as the story progresses, it shows that even that extreme, what they are and who they are and who the, who the authorities are. What inspired you, know? you to do Thanksgiving? <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, uh, to, to, to be honest, um, uh, I have, I, when I was in college, um, um, I, I finished with an anthropology degree. Out of cultural anthropology, and one of the things that I focused on were forced migrations throughout time. Um, and, the, and the story I, I tell people, which is true, um, when I was a very small boy, I was growing up in Forest Hills, and my father would bring me around to all the different shops in, in the neighborhood, and every now and then I would see somebody with numbers on their arm. And I didn't understand what that meant. And then as I got older, I learned what that meant. Mm-hmm. So the idea of people being marginalized, and people being pushed away from, from their homes or, or, or brought together because they're one type of person or, or become the other in whatever culture that is, whatever, whatever government says they're the other. And that kind of thing, um, for, for me, I do a lot of science fiction. So that usually turns into, into, um, rights of artificial intelligence and, and um, and robots and things like that, but it's all an allegory for humans. So that kind of thing, I, I try to I try to embody that into my work. Mm-hmm. Okay. So next question: um, Countless people have said to me, "Oh, I want to make a movie, but I don't have the money." So according to you, because people have varying thoughts on this one, what's the lowest budget you can have to make a feature film? A good feature film, uh, which is very subjective. 
a good feature film? That's a little, a little tricky. You can. Yeah. Learn, we're, we're not talking about Chakula. We're talking about how the Chakula could be great. <laughs> um, uh, anyone can make any kind of film that they want, and, and I know that's kind of a little bit of a cop out of an answer, but it's absolutely yeah. true. If you had the, the the iPhones that everybody has in their pockets right now, is a better camera than I started with. It's as simple as that. There are there are film festivals that are only iPhone based films, um, and that's and that's a growing kind of thing now. Um, what I, it depends what your story is, okay? If your story is about, you know, the family life of one family and some minimum locations, you know, you can make a feature for $10,000, right? If your feature is out in space and you're, you're, you're fighting aliens, and you know, that's a whole different thing. I mean, I, I have two scripts right now that are going to cost me $300,000 each. I can't afford them, which is why they're scripts and not films. And, um... And, uh, yeah, but it, it really depends. Um, if, I won't say steal, but I would say beg and borrow whatever that you can, you know, and, and getting people involved in this that may know this. Like, I have, we all have different kits. We have lights, we have, we have sound, we have this, we have that, and we all, and a bunch of us definitely traded around. Bob Sosa's here right now, he's seen us do this a million times. You know, we all trade everything around. Um, there are ways to do this. If you have an idea for a feature, but what it comes down to is the story. If you don't have that, you have nothing. No matter what amounts of money you're going to throw at this, I've seen people throw a quarter of a million dollars at a film that has no story. Yeah. And they'll spend the rest of their lives paying off those loans. Yeah. You know, but yeah, but, but you, a couple thousand dollars in your pocket and enough friends and things like that, you can absolutely do this, but it always comes down to the story. Okay. Um, as a stand-up actress, filmmaker, I've dealt with a lot of psychopaths and some really crazy situations, so could you tell us one scary situation or something that scares you as a filmmaker or actor? Um, what scares me, um, what scares me is someone getting hurt on set. That's, I, I always, I always, I always tell people I'm not going to make anyone do something I won't do myself. I would never do that. Um, I've had people volunteer to do things. And I said, well, I don't want you to do that. And they're like, no, I really want to do that. Mm. And they'll do stunts and they'll throw themselves off things. And I'm like, I, I'm, I'm, listen, that's up to you, you know? Um, I haven't had too many problems um, with people that way. Um, I've been very fortunate with that. There have been some scary moments, though. Um, we were filming the Zombie Hunter show um, and, and at a wonderful outdoor location called Metro Interiors. And it's right a block from the Huntington Station, the Long Island Railroad Station. And as the trains slow down, they're all pulling into the station, and also we have all these people in the yard dressed up as zombies and other people with, run, with guns, and they're killing them. So, like, the zombies would go up to the fence and start, like, clawing at the passengers, and it was pretty funny. But then the people who were National Guards people, I mean, you were there. The people, the people who were National Guards, they, would, they go walk up to the trains with the guns. And I'm like, okay, okay guys, no, 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 we have to, the monsters are okay. <laughs> Let's get away from the gun. Everyone with a gun just come over to me. Um, but we haven't had too many problems with things like that. Um, I try to, I try to use people that I, that I like a lot, um, and that I know, or that someone else that I know can vouch for them. And, um, if you do it that way, you're, you're usually not gonna have a lot of problems. Yeah. Um, but then there are always, there are always, you know, some people you just don't know, and then later on, you get weird things from them. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so then at that point, it's just, you know, kind of smile and, you know, not use them again. Yeah. Just quietly. <laughs> so, uh, at the social media point of the show, tell people where they can find out more about yourself, your projects, all that fun stuff, 
go. Ah, so if you guys want to know more about what I'm doing, you can go to pdevani.com. Uh, you can find me as Patrick Devani on Facebook. If you go to, uh, I have a YouTube channel uh, called uh, Patrick's Creative Shack. It's also called Otter Dam Media. If you look that up on YouTube, you'll find all the things I've been working on. You'll find us on Vimeo. And most of my work that isn't in the festivals right now are online for everyone to enjoy. Uh, we usually do that without a festival run. If it doesn't get picked up, then we then we put it online for everyone to enjoy. But pdevani.com will link you to everything that I've been doing. All right, so we, uh, as I mentioned earlier in the show, Patrick was nice enough to give a uh, script. And uh, use stage uh, directions on his uh, on the script, right? Uh, yeah, you'll, you'll find stage directions on them. You will find... Um, you'll find um, editing notes. You'll find all kinds of things like that. It is pretty cool to see it all, and you can see from the shot list on how we shot the thing, and also matching to the to the script on how things change. And also, we do an audibles when people would just change something. My idea had to make sure that we knew that it was right. You know, she wrote everything down. Uh, Lynn, um, Lindsay Serrano was a director in her own right. Um, she was my ID for a number of years, and she's fantastic. And so you'll see all her handwritten notes. All right, I'm going to take it. Everybody have a ticket, right? Before I... Everybody have a ticket? Okay, right. All right, I'm going to take it. We don't have a number for this, please. Well, you know what the radio is for? 541. 541. 631. There you go. All right. Nobody here. There we go. Look at that. It's a rough audience. Yeah, so that's the You want a script? You want a script with some directions. Patrick is getting up right now. Right now. I thought you had a hand. Does he have a hand? He does have a hand. There you go. Wow. All for you. Thank you very much. Hey, there you go. So we are almost out of time. So we're going to have our final thoughts. So tell me, Jenny, do we have any final thoughts for this week in front of a live studio audience? Final thoughts are uh, stay ready. You don't have to get ready. You stay ready. Get, stay ready. You don't have to get ready. All right. Patrick, do you have any final thoughts? If you want to do this kind of thing, go out and just do it. Don't let anyone tell you you can't. Don't let your, your bank account tell you you can't. Don't let your wallet tell you you can't. Don't let your fears tell you you can't. Go out and do it. And if you don't like the way it comes out, do it again better. If someone tells you you shouldn't, you try to do a whole feature film, maybe you should get on some sets first before you make your own. Well, that goes for being ready. So maybe sometimes you should listen when someone says you can't. <laughs> if they know if they, if they, they know what they're talking about yeah, if they know what they're talking about yes if it's just someone that you know like you can't do that because I believe me I heard enough of that in my life so yeah <laughs> so but yeah that's true that is true so my final is this I thank you Patrick for being a guest on our first live show back in front of a live city audience Middle Public Library for having us on our 64th. We've done 64 of these lives. Oh, my God, it's so So I think, uh, Patrick, you're a really good guy. It's really interesting that I met you, but um, we've been around, we've had to have passed each other many times Absolutely. in Long Island Film Festival, so it's a pleasure meeting you. Much continued success. And when you have more stuff, come back on. We can put out some more. Uh, let us know. I would love to. So uh, that about does it for this week on the King Generator. Join us right here and in the radio station. If you missed any part of the show, 
go to our website, www.thecampfriend.com. The Anglican Archives will be up in a week or so. Check us out on Facebook, uh, Twitter. Also, make sure you come to the East Middle Park Library for our next live show, which is going to be on February the 8th. And we have uh, CEO and founder, co-founder of the Artisans Nook. We have Brittany Pleasant, who's going to be on Wednesday, February 8th at 7 p.m. East Middle Park Library. Go to www.eastmiddle.info. And with that, we'll see you next time. You've been listening to It Came From The Radio with Mark Torres. The views of the show's hosts and guests did not necessarily reflect that of the management, owners, or staff of the station. We now return you to your earthly scheduled broadcast.